Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. We are, you know, each summer we spend our summer months reading from the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And this year we're in the book of Numbers, or as they call it in the Jewish Bible, they call it Sefer, which is book, Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And today we're getting just this little snapshot of how they handled four, I guess, typical problems or situations that would arise um, just in the midst of day-to-day -day life within what is called in Hebrew, ha-mehane. Ha -me it's actually ha-mehane. You have to do that little sounding thing. Try to say it this way with me. Say ha-mehane. Ha-mehane. That was a good, like that was, that's nice. Um, so this word means the camp or the encampment. It's a phrase often used in the Torah that refers just to the place that they live together. We, we would say something like the neighborhood or our hometown. And, and this phrase, ha-mechane, points to the reality of what Torah, the first five books of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, what it's all about. Torah is about navigating everyday life within the camp, wherever your camp is. Um, and Torah's goal is, is not primarily, you could say, religious in nature. It's about transforming ha-mahane, life within the camp. And so today we're going to look at how they respond to these four um, like common uh, situations or issues living as they were within the, the ha-mahane, um, the camp, uh, there in the wilderness. And all of this is going to seem pretty strange because these are ancient people with very different cultural attitudes and practices than us. So we have to try to just kind of take them on their own terms and not judge these practices by today's standards. Although I must admit, a certain amount of this is going to be unavoidable today because what we're talking through is weird. It's going to be weird. Um, we're reading from Numbers chapter 5. And um, I'll just start in with the first situation. It, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to expel from the camp anyone with um, tsara'at, uh, a skin disease, an oozing discharge, gross, or who has become tameh, unclean, from contact with a corpse. You must send out both male and female. You must send them outside the camp so that they will not make their camp where I live among them, Tame, unclean. So this is the first situation. Skin diseases, oozing discharges, and dead things. I really lobbied hard to keep the children in for this one because I just thought, you know, nothing says Jesus loves you like oozing discharges and dead things, but I lost that battle. Um, just on a practical level, you can imagine this is, this is just a safety measure. Many in, infectious diseases present with a rash. And you never really knew. Is this just like a skin rash or something more serious? So to be safe, they had people move outside the camp, and, and God promises to be, to be with them there. So that, that's this on a practical level. But this little um, chestnut exists on a symbolic level as well. So what's, what's going on here seems to be that um, God had chosen this, this family, these people, pulled them aside from the empires of the world to sort of hammer out God's image into, their, into the people who would become for Yahweh a kingdom of priests, 
mediating the presence of God to the rest of the world so that through them, the rest of the world could come to know the God who is. And so sometimes, like seemingly in, insignificant things are symbolically sort of blown out of proportion to make a point, to te teach a, a lesson of some kind. And here, part of what God seems to be trying to help them to learn was how to distinguish between the things in the camp, the things that make for life, and the things that make for death. And so God introduces to them in, the, in this passage, again, reintroduces, because it's there in Leviticus 2, these, these two ideas. The first is tamim. Anybody remember this word tamim from Leviticus? Does it ring a bell? Okay, so tamim means unblemished, but sort of in an ordinary sense. Like, it just means this, with this thing that's tamim, nothing's wrong with it. It's, it, it's just existing as itself with no obvious defects. Um, we encountered this because anytime they brought an offering to the tent, an offering to God, it had to be tamim. Unblemished is usually what it's translated as. But, but like if they brought a goat, it didn't have to be a holy goat of some kind. Just a normal everyday goat that's a goat as goats should be. In fact, last summer, the, the Regeer family gave me a, this stuffed goat. They found it in a, in a gift shop or something. If you show, hit, yeah, there you go. This is a little stuffed goat, and they named it Goatus Goat Shabi. That's the goat's name. And that's it. It's just a, it's Tamim. That's Tamim. It's just a goat as a goat should be, right? It's, it's a, so they named it Goatus Goat Shabi. I thought it was funny. Um, there's, and, and just in being itself, there's, there's a kind of wholeness to it. They flourish as themselves and, and can help cause other things to flourish. That's Tamim. And then along with Tamim, there's this other concept, Tameh. And Tameh things just lack this wholeness. Tameh, it, it came to mean, like we translate it, unclean, impure, blemished, diminished in some way, maybe tainted by disease or sickness. Maybe it's like too big or too small or in the wrong place, out of proportion. And, and, and the, the thing is, though, Tameh does not mean sinful. It's not sinful. It just, they just symbolize these are things that make for death in the camp. And death is con contagious. You know, like the power of death can spread quickly through the camp. So they would take Tameh things outside the camp. Okay, so what's this part about, like the taking things outside the camp? Like, what's the difference between inside and outside the camp? Why do they do this? And partly, it's just practically safer. But if you remember last week, when we talked about the arrangement of the camp, remember this part? And um, how out in the middle of Bamidbar, the wilderness, um, that God had created this little kind of oasis of fruitfulness and growth in the middle of a desert, which today we learn to call um, um, Ha-Me-Mahani, right? The, the camp, the, and the arrangement of the camp here actually corresponds to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, the fruitful land of Eden. It's part of why, by the way, they're out there taking a census. They're trying to prove they have been fruitful and multiplied like they were asked to do in, in Genesis 1 and 2. So um, Ha-Mahane, the camp, is, is like the fruitful land of Eden. 
And then you kind of go one level in from there, and there's the circle of the Levites, remember that part, and the, and the priests who lived camped around the, the tent of meeting. To, and it actually says to abad and shamar, to, to till or to work and to keep the, the tabernacle. It's the same words used for Adam and Eve when God gives them a human vocation, to till the earth and keep it. Same, same word. So there's this connection there corresponding um, between the Levites and the garden. So the camp is like the land of Eden. The Levites and the priests camping around it are like the Garden of Eden. And then one level in the center of it from there, you have the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, which corresponds to the tree of life in Genesis. The the tent of meeting is at the center of the camp, the way the tree of life was at the center of the garden. So, So the arrangement of the camp tells us what God is up to here in the wilderness with the Hebrew people is God is trying to address what went wrong in Genesis. One, two, and three in the garden. God's trying to teach them once again what it means to be a human. In fact, all four of these things are going to correspond to Genesis in important ways. Um, but God's trying to, um, in a sense, renew them in the image of God after what went wrong in the garden. And just like in the garden, if you remember where Adam and Eve missed the mark and then what happens, they're sent out of the garden. They're, they're put outside the camp, as it were. So here in Ha um, Mahane, anytime someone misses the mark here, these things that are Tame, they end up being put outside the camp as well. Is that, does that make sense? And so, so they're re, th- this isn't just like a, a practical thing. They're retelling the story of, of Genesis here in the wilderness. It's like a do-over there. And so, so a skin disease isn't just a skin disease. It's a power or it's a symbol of the power of death, that it's threatening things that God wants to be alive, you know. If it doesn't fit, if it's Tame, it doesn't fit within this little symbol of life in, in the desert, or the things that make for life. And God's trying to help them to distinguish between the things that make for life and things that make for death. So that's the first one. Let's look at the second one. There's four of them. Anytime a man or a woman commits one of the hatat ha'adam, sins. If you remember, we talked about hatat a few weeks ago. It means sins, or really it just means missing the mark. That's what it means. Hatat means missing the mark. So the sins of Adam, thus breaking faith with the Lord, the person becomes guilty. Such persons will confess the sin they have done. Each will make payment for his guilt, add one-fifth more, and give it to the injured party. Okay, so what are the hatat um, ha Adam, the sins of Adam. Remember, Adam just in Hebrew it just means human. That's what we think of as Adam's first name. It just means human. But it's an, it's an odd phrase. It's the only time this is contained in in Torah. If you think about the sins of Adam, you think of Adam and Eve, you know, eating the forbidden fruit, and the the primary result of that was not some like cosmic guilt punishable by death. The primary result is they lost their relationships. A wedge is driven in their relationship in every direction. The way they relate to um, themselves, they start to feel shame. The way they relate to God, they fear God and they hide from God. The way they relate to each other, um, Adam immediately throws Eve under the bus and says, this woman gave it to me. There's blaming, right? And Eve blames creation, blames the serpent, and then they're at odds with creation. They're, they're toiling with the soil. So, so the sins of Adam, they're, they're things that have this, um, 
relational impact. They produce fear, shame, hiding, blaming, and a kind of separation between the self and the self, the self and each other, the self and God, even creation. And so the, the question here is, you know, what are these offenses and, and what do we have to do about them? Well, the, the sins of Adam are offenses between members of this sacred community, right? The ha-mahane. And, and when a couple of people hurt each other or act selfishly, um, those are the sins of Adam missing, missing the mark. And so what they have to do about them is don't do what Adam and Eve did. Don't blame, hide, be afraid. Don't try to cover up their nakedness. You know that part of the story, they try to they cover themselves. Symbolically, this kind of means don't hide the truth about ourselves. I always hear echoes of Jesus talking about hypocrites when, when I think of that. And, and so anytime we cause a breach between us and another person, don't live inauthentically in blame shift or hide. Just confess it. Tell the truth about it and make amends. And um, here, it's, it's like, it's too technical to go through all of it, but the language in this passage is clearly alluding to Genesis, in particular to the story of Cain and Abel, one of the big sins of Adam, and, and the first murder in the scriptures. So the sins of Adam are always between brothers, in a sense. So it's including things like jealousy, sibling rivalry, ultimately violence that stems from our broken desire. So the sins of Adam are like everyday sins we all commit, mostly not even on, on purpose, but they're the things that mess up our relationships. You know, those are the sins of Adam. And they, they produce in us this instinct to go hide, to feel shame, to, to fear each other, to, to blame each other. And everyone experiences this. And the remedy is confession and then making amends. So what we're going to do is line everybody up right here. And what we're going to do, we're gonna, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we have to, though, find a way to, you could say, tell the truth about our lives, about what we've done. That's how we get past the sins of Adam. Okay, here's the third one. And buckle up, because this one's crazy, all right? Um, a man may suspect that his wife has had an affair and has broken faith with him, that a man has had intercourse with her unknown to her husband, and that she has become Tomei, unclean, defiled, even though there are no witnesses and she isn't caught. If jealousy overcomes him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if jealousy overcomes him and he is jealous of his wife who hasn't defiled herself, then the man will bring his wife to the priest. So if some guy suspects his wife has been unfaithful, um, most likely because she has become pregnant, that's inferred here, because they're going to address that in a minute, he can bring her to the priest. And what they do is, for lack of a better term, they do an adultery test on her. Uh, we're not going to read the whole passage, because it's, it's actually really long. But this is basically how the adultery test will go. And let me say up front, this is messed up. And this is, we ought not to treat women this way, but this was a long time ago. Um, first, you bring her to the tabernacle with an offering, a guilt offering, a korban, a grain offering. Then you put holy water in an earthen jar, 
and you take dust from the floor of the tabernacle and mix it into the water. And then she is to let down her hair and stand before the Lord and swear an oath that if she didn't sleep with another man, she'll be immune to what's about to happen. And if she did, then she will be cursed by what's about to happen and will have a miscarriage. And, and she must agree to this. She must say, amen, amen. Then four, the priest will write this on a scrap of paper and dissolve the ink into the water. So now there's dust from the floor and ink in the water. And the woman must drink the water. And then the priests burn the offering and everybody goes home. And they wait to see what happens. If she's telling the truth, then she'll carry the baby to term. And if she's not telling the truth, she will miscarry. And presumably, then would be her, her womb would be cursed. She'll be barren. So, <laughs> the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, right? <laughs> so, on its face, this is really messed up for, like, a bunch of different reasons. Like, first of all, where's the test for the men? I don't see one of those in here. And let's just stay, historically speaking, if there's some, you know, funny business going on, I'm not sure I'd start with the women, you know, in asking questions. But that's just me. Obviously, there's a long list of reasons why this is um, problematic. Um, it, it actually seems like something a tribal shaman would do, making this potion to divine the truth. And, and so as a ritual practice, it's, it's obviously twisted and you know, radically chauvinistic, treating women as a suspect class and, and without power. But I want to suggest that there might be more going on in this text. I really do think there is, more than meets the eye. And perhaps it isn't just about an unfaithful wife or a jealous husband, but rather is about the role that fidelity plays in the life of the people of God here at this infant stage in their life. In fact, I mean, I read a lot about this because <laughs> I didn't think I would ever preach a sermon on this passage, obviously. Um, but most of the rabbis I read and commentators say this is really not about particular cases of infidelity. This is really in there, in this position, as a symbol of the infidelity of the Israelite people um, at, at this time who keep begging to go back to Egypt and trust the gods of Pharaoh. So it's a narrative device, they say, that according to most of the Hebrew scholars I read, it's teaching them that only lives which are rooted in fidelity can serve as the foundation for this new people that's being forged out here in the wilderness, this new humanity that will hew closer to God's intention. So it's, it's like a warning about infidelity for this whole generation who, who keeps longing to go back to Egypt and trust the gods of, of Pharaoh. So, and symbolically, what's communicated is this idea that infidelity itself is a kind of curse. And, and you can, like, you can't image a God whose character is fidelity unless you can embody fidelity in your common life. And, and if you can't practice fidelity, your life is kind of cursed. It's, it's, infidelity is one of those things that makes for death. So it's, it's not even really about particular situations. It's about Israel and the virtues that need to define them as a people if they're going to be a kingdom of priests. 
And I wish I could um, get into the particulars, but it's super involved. I'm not even sure I totally understand it. I mean, I was tracking it, but um, it would take forever. But the, the part of the reason the rabbis believe this is this ongoing connection to the book of Genesis from this story. And this, this story is retelling Genesis 1 through 9 in certain ways. And here, um, you can kind of see it. The first two laws are, are about Adam and Eve in the garden, um, their expulsion from the garden. Then there's Genesis, that's Genesis 1, 2, 3. There's Genesis 4, that's about Cain and Abel, which was in the last one. Um, Genesis 5 is a genealogy of all of Adam's family. This would co- correspond to the census in itself. And so this law, when you read this law, you expect it to correspond to Genesis 6. And in fact, in the language, the vocabulary in Hebrew, it does. The words, the sequence, they're all very similar. So when you look at Genesis 6, it's, it's going to help you understand what's happening here in the, in the adultery test. Well, Genesis 6 is where, you know that equally weird story where the sons of Elohim, the sons of the Lord, come to earth and have sex with human women and then give, give birth to these babies who are half God, half man. Remember that strange thing? These, these two strange things are connected in the text. And, and um, these guys who end up ha- being half God, these children are half God, half, half human, the Nephilim is what they're called. They turn out to be these, I mean, like violent warriors, warlords. And so this, this passage about the adultery test just echoes that story in Genesis 6. And um, one of those guys is the, it's the other tribe, the Gibberim or whatever, I can't remember what they're called, but they, this, this is a guy named Nimrod, which is what we used to call each other in middle school. We, and he turns out to be the founder of Babylon. You know, Egypt and Babylon, their origin stories are that they, their nations were started by half gods, half men. And so part of what that story in Genesis is doing is saying, this is not good. Like, this is also not where I'm starting the, the, the new humanity that will bear my image with half God, half men. That, that's been, in fact, horrible for life in the camp. These are violent warriors. They turn everything into blood sport. The land's full of violence. And, and this is not good. In fact, the next thing that happens in Genesis 6 is the flood. And the Noah stuff, the waters, you can see that connection here, here too. The same, same word used for waters and curse here. So the waters will be a curse to the unfaithful ones. And in the flood, you know, the, the half God, half humans, they're washed away by the waters. Here, the children of infidelity be washed away by the waters. Same language, same symbols being used here in the adultery test. And, and it's really teaching them only humans have been chosen to bear the image of God in the way God intended. And not just any humans, only humans who know how to live in fidelity. It's, it's part of God's character. You can't image God without this. The, only they can serve as kind of the basis, the founding fathers for this nation of priests. And so the, the strange fidelity test, it corresponds to that flood narrative where the, and the waters are seen the same way as a curse and they're pointing toward the necessity of fidelity. Okay, now the last one. This is the making of the Nazarite vow that we read earlier. So when a, a man or woman makes the vow of a Nazir so that they want to hizir themselves to Hashem, to the Lord. Na, um, nazir just means separate oneself out. Hizir means to select out 
and then dedicate to something else. So this is a vow any Israelite man or woman, it mentions both, can, can make to dedicate themselves to Yahweh and take on the life of the Nazir, the set-apart ones. And Nazir, the root word, N-Z-R, it's important because it's the um, same as the Nezer, Nezer the, um, the, if you remember the pre- high priest, when they go in the temple, they wear this golden plaque or, or cramp plaque on a crown. And it is called the Nezer, same, same root word. And what it says on that plaque is, I belong to Yahweh. And so you have to you connect the vow and what's going on there. So essentially, as you read the demands of the Nazarite vow, it's just this way for any Israelite person, man or woman, to say, I belong to Yahweh. In a special, I'm separating my, I'm giving my life to God in a, in a special way. To take on actually the way of life of the high priest. And anyone can do this. It's not a lifetime value. They could just say for a season or for a particular reason. But it's open to all of them. But they have to take these vows. So first one, you can't drink because of Aaron, Aaron's sons. And the, they got drunk and did the unauthorized fire, right? So priests can't, can't drink. No more drinking on the job. Um, second vow, couldn't cut their hair. Um, this is a, a way of identifying with Adam. Kind of, it's going back, back to the wild, being un, undomesticated. No razor could touch their head. Their, their hair will go long like primal humans. The third one was they can't touch a dead body. You cannot come in contact with death, just like the high priest who wasn't allowed to do this. And there are several famous characters in the, in the scriptures. Like, remember the story of Samson, which is also a weird one? Um, Samson was a Nazarite, and he had so much trouble because he kept breaking the Nazarite vows. Like, he drank wine. Remember, he dug honey out of the dead carcass of, of what was it, a bear or something, a lion? I can't remember which it was. But... Um, and then he cut his hair, not allowed to do this. He's, he's, you know, the whole story revolves around him breaking his Nazarite vows. In the New Testament, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Um, the Apostle Paul takes the Nazarite vow for a time. Remember, he went to Jerusalem, shaved his head. He's actually um, arrested when he goes to the temple to make the offering when his Nazarite vow is complete. That's when Paul gets arrested. And, and so this, this whole law, this vow, is all about any Israelite person can become like a priest, like fully dedicated to God. And, and that it's not only reserved for the priest, it's reserved for any man or woman, and both are mentioned explicitly. Okay, so that's it. Those are the four strange things from Numbers 5 and 6. So what do we, like, how, how do we make some sort of meaning out of these things for our, our lives? And we have to be careful when we do this. You know, anytime we reinterpret um, Jewish scriptures, we have to be careful to not talk like God is somehow finished with Israel and now moved on to the church or something like that. God is clearly not replacing Israel, is not done with them. But we do have some claims we make about these things as Christians, that through Christ we've been drawn into this history and that we can play a similar role as we pursue life in the way of Jesus. I mean, our, our hope is that our common life will embody the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God, that we can become a kingdom of priests ourselves. And that by following Jesus, 
we can offer a genuine alternative to the rest of the culture, right? A, a way of relating to God and self and other and even creation that's characterized by a different way, a way of reconciliation, grace, forgiveness, love, and self-sacrifice that we think can lead to life, not death, to wholeness and, and flourishing. And other than the part about Jesus, nothing in that description is radically different from ancient or especially modern day Judaism. This is just always what God has been up to in the world. The difference for us is that we believe Christ was the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one. And that he was anointed, um, and this is a really big question, what's he anointed do? He's, he's anointed not just to die on a cross so you can go to heaven when you die. He's anointed to fix what has gone haywire in the garden. And this is a foundational idea for us as Christians, too. Um, this time in the wilderness, if you zoom out a little bit, what we're studying here and what we've been studying for a while since um, Exodus is called the, the Exodus, or what we would call the first or original Exodus. God liberating the Hebrew people from bondage um, in Egypt, like actual bondage, but also from kind of a bondage of the imagination to empire. So the, the first task of the Exodus is get the people out of Egypt. The second task is to get Egypt out of the people, out of their imaginations, to root out the assumptions of empire. And in the first Exodus, God would, would really help move all of humanity. And I mean all, not just the Jewish people. It would help all of humanity take a radical step forward in our common understanding of God. They move past paganism to belief in one God, a God whose character is not petty like the pagan gods, it didn't need to be appeased, but a God who's just trying to draw people out of their tents to meet with God who's present living with them in the center of the camp. That's, that's the first exodus. And as Christians, what we believe is that Christ was a new exodus, a second radical leap forward in the revelation of God that was on par or even kind of, in a, in a sense, more important than the first exodus. You know, within the J Jewish narrative, there's this Messiah figure, the anointed one. And we, we believe this is Christ. He's the Messiah, the one who leads a new exodus, leaving the empires of men for what Jesus called the kingdom of God. So Jesus is the anointed one sent to lead humanity out of bondage in this new exodus, to, to move humanity toward a new understanding of God and of life and the world and what it means to be human. And where the, the first exodus kind of knocked down things like paganism um, and was just God forming God's image in a people who knew, didn't even know God's name when they left Egypt. Um, all the sacrifices and ritual stuff, so, so weird in that, was just God working with whatever primitive religion existed at the time and just using it to try to draw people out so they would come and meet with this God who is present. The second exodus was an end to a bunch of stuff. It was revolutionary. It was like the end of the shamanistic rituals, animal sacrifices, temple religion, all those kind of vestiges of um, 
old pagan religions that remain part of Israel's life and revealing a new understanding um, of, uh, to the people of God, part of which was an end to the practice of putting people outside the camp. And this is, Jesus took pretty close aim at this stuff. Radical inclusion was his way of being. He dispensed with the old categories of clean and unclean. Those things had served their purpose by the, his time. And that change had already begun in his people. He threw you know, gas on that fire. And Christ's new exodus also instituted this new way of being for the people that's rooted not in like keeping the letter of law. It was rooted in grace and mercy and forgiveness, not punishment, reconciliation, not revenge. He, he recommended uh, in the new exodus a life of faith, hope, and love. Faith defined as keeping faith, as fidelity. Hope defined as just trusting that God is the unending source of life. And love defined as self-sacrifice, as laying our lives down for each other, trusting that God will just bring more life always. The new exodus led the people out of the, you could say, the empire of the angry, vengeful God teaching people to view God instead as this loving father. And not one who's far off in heaven somewhere, but a God who's radically present as the source of all of life. Really, the culmination of the, the new exodus was this revelation that wherever two or three are gathered in the name of Christ, God just appears alive in their midst. Everywhere and always. This God is everywhere. Always present in the ha-mehane, in the camp. So this new exodus, it was a revolution. It's rooted in this first exodus, in, in a similar way that this first exodus is rooted in Genesis, in the story, right? These stories are just nested and intertwined together. This new revelation, though, is about this father who's always with us, who loves us, who's creating us, recreating us over and over, sustaining us, who is the source of life, the source of meaning, a God who actually unites all of humanity as one family, and a God who is leading humanity out of bondage to the empires of the world and, and bondage to this idea of a far-off angry God and replacing it with um, God in human image, Christ, who was a brother with us and who is somehow alive in us and making all things new in, in the world. And so our task, as we think about how do, we, how do we negotiate these four strange laws and numbers, our task is to live in faithfulness to the way of Jesus, the way they would try to live in faithfulness to these, these four things. And to the spirit of them. To embrace this new exodus in our own lives here in the um, Ha-Mahane. In our camp, our community, our hometown. Wherever we live our, our lives. To see God as present with us. Living on in the world through us. And to see as our calling and, and as really the purpose of human beings. To find a way to bear the image of God in the way that we organize our common life together here in the camp, in the way that we cultivate our relationships around 
mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation and especially fidelity. And so if you're part of Redemption Church, this is what we're always chasing. It's the same thing they were chasing in the garden. They went haywire. It's the same thing they were chasing in the, the Exodus and there in the wilderness. And this 40 years, man, we're going to see it just keeps going haywire over and over. And it's what we're chasing here. And the next thing we say is, and it's going to go haywire. It's going to break. It's going to constantly break. But what we do is practice fidelity with each other. Forgiveness. Grace. Grace, I always like to say, grace is endless second chances. This is what we, this is what we extend to one another. Endless second chances. And this is what it means to be part of this new exodus as God leads us onward further up and further into the kingdom and out of the the bondage of whatever holds us um, to death or that leads to death let's pray oh god we thank you for a chance to study these old old stories and these strange practices i just feel a sense of awe at the way these primitive people so long ago, they were reaching out toward you and longing for you and listening and how, um, just how patient you were, God, and using kind of primitive religion and weird ideas and even just super broken things, finding a way to communicate through those things your love for humanity and your desire to see us, um, Tamim, to see us, to be human as human is meant to be. And because of that flourishing and finding wholeness and peace. And we confess just as in Genesis, just as in this first Exodus here at Redemption, that we'll we'll just mess it up over and over. But we're so grateful for Christ and for the grace of endless second chances. And I pray that that kind of mercy would live among us. And I pray that um, a, just a deep fidelity to each other and to you would mark us and stamp us in your image, oh God. Amen. If you would stand, please, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do this is um, we just uh, will be released row by row by the ushers and they'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You can just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can um, respond by saying, I will remember however you feel comfortable. The reason that we do this is that on the night when Christ was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he he took a loaf of bread and a cup and he had them all share from the same loaf, the same cup. And he said, this is, this is symbolic. This is a symbolic thing you're doing. The, the, um, the bread is like my body. The cup is like my blood or my life. And what I want you to do symbolically when you gather is receive my life into your life. Like, let me live inside you. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. Be my hands and feet in this world. And he said, every time you gather, do this symbolic meal to show that you're part of one family and that your task is to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world. And so that's why we receive communion every week, just in obedience to this. 
And it's also why we just, we don't put strings attached to it. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus can join us at the table. And we're grateful to have you. And um, before we do this, let's, let's pray a blessing on the table. Oh God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?